A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Economist. London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm your host, Kenneth Kukier, the data editor, and today I'm joined by Ludwig Siegler, our technology correspondent, and Tim Cross, our science correspondent. In this episode, we'll discuss upcoming 5G wireless technology and also how the human immune system can be engineered to do a better job. Ludwig, let's turn first to you. The Mobile World Congress will take place in Barcelona on Monday, the 22nd. One of the big topics being discussed there is 5G technology. Question, what in the world is 5G technology? Oh, it's it's actually, if it turns out as planned, it's going to be the, the wireless paradise in a way. So what these companies are trying to do is basically create this ubiquitous wireless atmosphere. So as a user, you will have kind of the experience of that bandwidth is, there's no limit to bandwidth. So you, you turn on dev- your device, you power up a browser, or you want to watch a video on your, your mobile device, it should work. That's the idea. But that's not, 5G is not only that. 5G is also supposed kind of to serve what's called the Internet of Things. So all these con- connected machines and sensors that uh, are supposed to kind of populate the world in the near future. And they need a connect- connections, and 5G is supposed to serve them too. Now, we have heard the mobile industry talk with laudatory terms of their great technology that is just around the corner, and then we have to wait two decades to get it. How long do you expect us to have to wait for this nascent 5G technology? The good question usually takes like 10 years between generations. So 3G to 4G took 10 years. 4G, people started really building and rolling out those networks a couple of years ago, three years ago. And so we're talking early 20s, 21, 22. There will be early implementations in South Korea for the Winter Olympics and in Japan for the Summer Olympics because these countries want to be ahead in in the rollout of 5G. Okay, so it's not right around the corner, but it's coming up. Can you give us some real interesting, realistic use cases? How will our world look different when we're in a 5G universe? For example, if you have self-driving cars or kind of semi-self-driving cars and connected cars, you will have connectivity in those cars, even if they speed along the highway at, I don't know, 200 kilometers per hour. So even if you play a game where latency is really important, where kind of it has to be react fast, you can do that. The real difference will happen within kind of in densely populated areas, cities and indoors. And that's where kind of you'll have very good connectivity. You don't even have to think about it. And the way this is done is there will be new antennas, for example, that move around that kind of rather than creating kind of a cell, a wireless cell as is done today, they kind of pinpoint you and these antennas will blast connectivity or, or wireless beams to your device and even several antennas at once. Tim, you want to come in here? Yeah, you just you talk about self-driving cars and I was just wondering what, what the coverage is going to be like really because outside of, of town centres at the moment, a lot of places in this country you struggle even to get the 3G connection these days. A lot of it is, is sort of 2G stuff. If, I'm dri- if my self-driving car is driving down a country lane in the wilds of sort of Surrey or even somewhere more remote than that, is it still going to work? 
Yeah, that's the big question. I mean, the promise is, of course, 99% coverage or 100% coverage. But I mean, yes, of course, that's going to take time. In, in rural areas, it may not actually happen that quickly. But the idea is that there is a wild atmosphere. You don't think about it. There's always connectivity for any type of device. Now, I think both of you are actually thinking about today and extrapolating to tomorrow. And our minds are sort of still wedded to the past. I mean, Tim, you're talking about connectivity and, and the ability to get it in a reliable way, today's problem. And Ludwig, you're talking about self-driving cars uh, and gaming, which is already happening today sort of in, in small scale and thinking about tomorrow. What are the more science fiction-y uses when the world is entirely connected and enrobed in wireless frequencies that are in effect unlimited? What's going to change? What's going to be very new? Look, in the same thing, you do not think about electricity, Electricity is always there. You just plug it in wherever you are. They Even in remote areas, you assume yep. there's electricity. Same thing will happen with wireless. You always kind of you assume uh, that there's wireless connectivity wherever you go. In a way, 5G is a collection of wireless technologies that all kind of work together to, to provide connectivity, the type of connectivity or bandwidth you need where you are, whatever application you use. So, so if that's the future of sort of properly ubiquitous, high bandwidth, low latency, perfect wireless connectivity. Does that mean this is the last G or is, is 6G, 7G, are they all being worked on in labs somewhere? I mean, if, if the kind of the, that aspiration I just described becomes true, yes, it's probably uh, the last G. I mean, we don't talk about 5G electricity anymore. So, so it, it kind of fades into the background. Kind of we, we see these antennas on, on buildings and they will kind of disappear. They'll be smaller. They'll be in buildings. They will become tiles. There will be no base stations to speak of. It's kind of like cloud computing. The technology moves into data centers and gets virtualized. And what about cost? Can we expect that wireless bills might increase or decrease? Has anyone thought about that yet? It, it really depends what, what you think of when you talk wireless bills. I mean, the pure connectivity, kind of the access to the network, will probably be, become cheaper and cheaper. And I mean, that's, that's a big problem for, for uh, operators and companies they buy the gear from the network equipment makers, because that part of the industry will get squeezed. And so there's, there's people saying that, hey, actually, access will be a commodity, like, like electricity. And you'll pay a flat fee of some kind, and, and, and that's it. But you may spend much more money on the services that run on top of that network. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Next, let's move on to you, Tim. There's a story in this week's section about how reprogramming the human immune system can lead to a new cancer treatment. What's happening? So, yeah, as you say, this is um, the idea here is, is to sort of boost the immune system and to give it the ability to fight things that it can't currently fight. So the immune system is made up of lots of different cells that all do different jobs. One of the most important is something called T cells. Um, T cells themselves, they also do different things. One of, the, one of their main jobs is to work out what the immune system should be attacking and what it should be leaving alone. So when a virus or a bacteria um, you know, invades your body, the proteins expressed on its cell wall are different from the proteins that your immune system is used to seeing. You know, it, it knows what's in your own body. It knows what your own cells look like. When a bacterial cell invades or when a virus infects a cell, that changes and it, it spots something that wasn't there before and thinks, hmm, we should probably check this out. And it recruits the rest of the immune system to go and attack the invader. And the problem with cancer is that it's an attack from within. Exactly. So cancer cells, the immune system does spend quite a lot of its time, you know, killing cells that would otherwise become cancerous that have had a sort of malfunctioned. But it's the mechanism is less reliable because, as you say, you know, a cancer cell is not an invader. It's a piece of you that has gone wrong in some way and is now dividing uncontrollably. So it's harder for the immune system to recognize these things as being foreign, as being threats, as being things that need to be got rid of. And that's what this technology is trying to change. Okay, so how does the technology work? 
Well, so the basic idea, it involves um, you extract T-cells from, from the blood and then you reprogram them genetically. So you infect them with a virus uh, that you've created that, that contains these new genes that you want the, the cells to express. Um, once the cells are all sort of nice and infected, you replace them back in the bloodstream and they go to work. And what the genes do is they give the cells the ability to target very specific chemicals that you, the researcher, have chosen. Okay, so in other words, what we're doing is we're taking the body's own T-cells and giving it a helping hand in how to identify where to go to work. Exactly. We were giving it a better way to target the cancers that it would otherwise miss. So that requires that we take these molecules and apply them to the cancer. No, that's not quite right. So it's slightly complicated, but the way it works is that, you know, cancerous cells by definition are different from ordinary cells. So the proteins they're expressing on their cell surface will also be different. In a small number of cases, for a certain few kinds of cancer, there is one particular molecule that is only expressed on the surface of cancerous cells and is not expressed anywhere else. So the first set of trials are targeting this specific molecule because it's the easiest to do. Got it. So how is the trial working out? Well, so far, um, I think the best way to describe it would be it's potent. (laughs) That doesn't sound good. Well, exactly. So on the plus side, there was a trial of 31 people who were suffering from a particular form of of leukemia, and they achieved complete remission in over 90% of them, which is astonishing. You know, that's that's amazing. It's incredible. The problem is... When you introduce these T cells, they attack very aggressively. And if they attack too aggressively, the molecules produced by the immune system, the the chemicals secreted by it in the attack, can start to damage the rest of the body. And you get something happening called a cytokine storm, which is a very, very sort of unpleasant process in which the immune system basically starts attacking things that it shouldn't attack. And in that trial, several patients were hospitalized with this and two of them actually died. So one of the questions is you need to very, very carefully calibrate this so that it goes after the cancer, but not so powerfully that it's fatal to to the person who has it. And who is behind these trials? Well, so a lot of the research is being done by a guy called um, Stanley Riddle, who works at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Washington State. And there's a company called Juno Therapeutics that's, that's looking at commercializing this. But there's other work being done as well on whether you can expand the idea. So as we said earlier, at the moment, this works only on a small subset of cancers because they happen to express this one unique molecule. So you can use it to target them. But uh, last month, in late January, there was a paper published in Cell by a team from the University of California who've worked out a way to send the cells after two chemicals at once. And that makes you much more able to sort of finally discriminate because you might have two chemicals that in isolation appear everywhere but only appear together in one particular kind of cancer. And so that's a way, you know, that offers the possibility of targeting it much more broadly. That's really interesting. So you will be able to target to broader forms of cancer than the ones that we've just studied so far. And there's one final advantage as well, which is that because you're using the body's own immune system, you have something called acquired immunity. So, you know, if you have measles when you're young, you won't get it again when you're you're older. That's also mediated by T cells because once they know what to look for, they can jump on problems before they get get out of hand. So one of the big hopes for this therapy is that it'll stop cancers returning. It'll stop the remission. Staunching it at the very outset. Oh, that's really interesting. So when do we think this is going to leave the lab and go into practice? That's a bit harder to know. So obviously this problem of overstimulating the immune system, you've really got to make sure that's nailed down because that's potentially completely show-stopping. The other problem is that it's it's quite expensive. It's not like a traditional drug where, you know, you pick a chemical compound and then just mass produce it as cheaply as possible. You've got to use the patient's own immune system cells because if you use somebody else's, they will themselves generate an immune reaction. 
and you have to do this whole reprogramming process. So at the moment, I mean, no one really knows how much it, it costs because it's only being done in a research context. But if you push them to guess, they'll say, oh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars per treatment at least. So in other words, rich people will eventually be able to remedy themselves of cancer and poor people won't. Well, I mean, like all these things, you know, once it's left the lab, you know, economies of scale, those numbers will come down. Um, but it's probably a little bit early to say exactly when you'll be able to, you know, nip down to the chemist. and, and Yeah, in fact, I take back what I said. In fact, I retract it entirely because, of course, if you have a human being doing these things, it, it's costly. But if you have an AI doing it in a robot, it becomes super cheap. Yeah, I, I suppose that that's one way you, you could do it. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. Don't forget, if you have anything to say about this week's show, you can find us on Twitter at EconSciTech and on Facebook on our page, The Economist. For more news on science and technology, visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. <music> Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.